All right, turn, if you would, to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. One of Paul's prison epistles along with Philippians, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, written while he was under house arrest in, in Rome. Uh, Philippi is an interesting story behind it. On his second missionary journey, he had a vision from the Lord says, come over here to the European mainland and and share the gospel with us. And he saw that as a a nod from the Lord, get over there and do the work. Uh, They came to Philippi and there was a lady, a dyer of purple cloth and her and her family were saved. They were put in jail and the Philippian jailer and his family converted to Christ. So the church is now about 10 or 12 years old as he writes this letter. And he's got some pretty advanced concepts in here, but the book, it seems to be, it's just so full of love, so full of joy. You, you can't help but read this book and come away with a grin on your face. Uh, its aim is not just to put a grin on your face, but to change your life. That's quite frankly the intent of all Scripture. It has never been my intention in this church to make you biblical scholars. I'm not interested in making Pharisees that know the Word of God but don't do the Word of God. So I believe that our mission uh, this morning, like every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night we gather, is to say, Lord, here am I. I'm an open book. You know me forwards and backwards. Would you change me? Would you take my heart? I offer it to you a, a living sacrifice. If you don't do that every time we gather together as a church, nothing happens. You don't learn, you don't grow, you don't change. Because these things have to take place in an atmosphere where you're open to hearing from God. That's why I cherish communion. It's where you have the opportunity the first of every month to say, Lord, I realize it's all about you. It is your body that was, in every sense of the word, uh, given for me. It is your blood that was shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But what's required when you come to church is that you just open up. Open up to God. This isn't a religious gathering. This is a place of honesty. If you can't be honest with God, there's no point in you being here. You'll get nothing out of it. I want you to be changed. I want you to grow. I want you to have more joy. I want you to have more victory. And it's found in this single chapter, there are so many nuggets here, it is, it's just unbelievable to me. The church had grown to the point where they had multiple pastors, multiple overseers. But what we start with is something that does not belong here. No, it, I'm not saying that verse 1 of chapter 4 is not part of the inspired text. It is. But there were no chapter and verse divisions as Paul wrote the letter. This is the dumbest place on planet Earth to put a break between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Well, where did we get these chapter and verse breaks? Well, I'm glad you asked. It was given to us by the Dr. Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And about 1227 A.D., he decided to help us navigate our way through the Word of God. He came up with these chapter and verse divisions that we've used in, in the last 700 years since then. So it's his fault. Have you ever sat down uh, with a book and fallen asleep in the middle of it? Some of you do that in church. (laughs) 
That's okay. That's why I like to pound the pulpit once in a while or tell a joke or holler loud or something. I just love watching sleeping people wake up and see what that. But so I think that's what happened to Dr. Stephen Langton. He burning the midnight oil, and he's just nodding off. Going, oh, good. Where am I? Oh, yeah. And he, and he tucks. It really belongs with Chapter 3. Its context is tied together with Chapter 3. Uh, so God bless Dr. Stephen Langton. But let's see what he says. Verse 1, therefore, and you go, what's it there for? Well, you don't know because it was a dumb place to put a chapter break. So you've got to read the previous chapter and what Paul said. He said, therefore, my beloved brothers whom I love and long for my joy and my crime, that is how you should stand firm. But we're all saying, well, how? How do I stand firm? Well, he covered that in chapter 3, which is why verse 1 of chapter 4 belongs back there. So just pretend it's, it's connected there. Okay, so how do we stand firm? There's so much pressure on you and I to compromise these days. So much pressure put upon us to compromise that we need to know what we can do to stand firm. And here's how. Take notes, or feel free to just highlight these notes right out of chapter 3. This is how it refers to the close of chapter 3, following Paul's spiritual example. Number one, by continuously continuing to forget the past. You have to do it again and again and again and again because Satan will bring it up that often. He will remind you of what a failure you were, what a dysfunctional past you came from, how you were an idiot, how you had sinned up a storm. He will constantly try to tie you with that. But you're a child of God. You've been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not who you used to be. And everybody who knew you back then says, praise Jesus, you are not the person you used to be. But you're not yet the person you're going to become. You're a work in progress. Be patient with yourself, but be sure that you're patient with other people in the body of Christ. None of us have arrived. I constantly have to forget the past. Don't bring it up. When There's that temptation when you have a, a squabble with your spouse. For those of you that are married, you always tend to bring up the past and rub each other's nose in it. Did Jesus forgive it? If it was confessed to him and asked forgiveness, it was forgiven. Are you greater than God that you have the right to bring it up again, something that he has forgiven? Are you greater than God? Then don't even think about bringing up the past again, unless you want, of course, God to bring up your past. Jesus put it well. He said, those of you who are without sin should cast the first stone. Don't do it. Don't do it. And it's a constant and ongoing battle. That's why it's put in the form of a participle, forgetting the past and straining towards what's ahead. I'm moving in the direction of Christ Jesus. I pursue him. I pray. I worship him. I read his word. I look for opportunities to hang out with Christians because iron sharpens iron. I have to consecutively, continuously press on to Christian maturity and Christ's likeness. He said that back in chapter 3 and verse 14. It doesn't happen accidentally. We sometimes think our spiritual growth is like when we grew up as infants. That regardless of what you do, they're going to get bigger and turn into teenagers anyway. 
That's not the way it works. You can stay in a state of arrested spiritual development, and you can be 75 years old and be a spiritual toddler. If you're not pursuing growth spiritually, it doesn't happen accidentally. You have to be intentional. Having their minds set on heavenly, not earthly things, he had said in verses 19 through 21, the previous chapter, eagerly looking forward to Jesus' return. As things heat up in the Middle East, it indicates to me the nearness of Christ's coming. The Bible predicted that in the very last of the last days, there would be an alignment between China and Russia and Iran in the Old Testament called Persia. We are right there today. And Iran is this close to having a nuclear weapons delivery system. They already have the bomb. Everybody's saying, well, it's going to be really worrisome if they have the bomb. They've detonated nuclear devices underground in caves several times already. What they're lacking is a nuclear weapons delivery system so they can bomb Israel. We are right there. Do you realize that? You are this close to walking into eternity. You are this close to seeing Jesus Christ face to face. I don't know if you're taking that seriously or not. I don't know if you're pursuing Christ or not, but Paul said, this, you want to know what's really important? You keep on forgetting the past. You keep on pressing ahead in Christ Jesus towards Christian maturity and Christ-likeness. Make sure that your mind is set on heavenly things, not earthly things. Today we are so consumed, absolutely consumed with entertainment and social media. That's not why God put you here. Do you understand that? You are in this world, but you are not of this world. And some of you are very confused on that. If you're spending more time on social media or television or the pursuit of entertainment, you're spending more time on those than you are in prayer and the reading of God's Word and in fellowship with the saints, you are on the wrong track. There's a day of reckoning coming. I don't know how you spend your time. We all have to work eight hours a day. But what do you do with the rest of it? Do you glorify God or do you pursue the flesh? That's a temptation today. Do you look forward to Christ's return? Or are you saying, Lord Jesus, if you could hold up for a while, got to get my party stuff out of the way first. Want to get drunk a few more times, sleep around, want to have a good old time. Hmm. Not living for Christ's return. Are you sure you know Jesus? Or did somebody just drag you to church? Do you know Jesus? Are you pursuing him? You must, you must anticipating our transformation, he had said back in verse 21 of of chapter 3. That is how you stand firm. Forgetting the past. Secondly, straining toward what's ahead. Pushing on to Christian maturity. Your mind, thirdly, set on things that are above, not things here below. Eagerly looking forward to Christ's return. If you haven't read the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, you'd do well to, to do that. That's what your future holds. It tells you all about where you're going to spend eternity. It's the only book that does. Are you anticipating our transformation? You know, no longer will we have bodies that that are sick or get ill or give us problems or arthritis or a thousand other issues. 
You say, well, that's easy for Paul to say. I mean, he is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church that was steeped in Greek and Roman paganism. He's not talking to saints. They came out of the bars. They came out of the houses of prostitution. They struggled with all of the things that the world offers today. Uh, They lived in a society that was full of corruption, immorality, entertainment, and every manner of excess. Here's the deal. Satan wants to infiltrate the church with that trash. He's done a good job. He's done a good job. I am concerned greatly about the rise in teenage suicide, which seems to be directly related to how much time they spend on social media. That ought to be a wake-up call. We have to monitor that stuff. So that's how you stand firm. Then he moves on to verse 2 with a series of exhortations. Do you know what an exhortation is? The word is parakaleo, which means literally to come alongside of you and call you out. It's got an edge to it. It's not all, you know, comfort. It's not all, you know, a box of chocolates. Exhortation's got a bit of an edge to it that says that encourages change. It's not just a kick in the seat of the pants, though we all need that from time to time. But it's an encouragement where somebody comes alongside of you, calls you out. Now, that, that means they've got to know something about you. But then when you develop those relationships within the body of Christ, we have automatically given each other that permission to come alongside of each other, to bear one another's burdens. All of these are scriptural principles. But when you sin, you tend to withdraw, don't you? You tend to withdraw from fellowship, tend to withdraw from the Lord. It's easy to skip church. You know what that feels like. That's why we've got to stay in step with the Spirit. Don't Remember this whole thing's about Jesus. Don't give in to the ways of the world. So when I say he is now going to be, start a series of exhortations here, it means not only to advise, it means to come alongside of because you care, but exhortation aims at change. Do, you, do, any, do any of you in this room need to change? Do you need to learn? Do you need to grow? Do you need to put aside some of the things of the flesh? Absolutely, we all do. Changed behavior, changed conduct, changed thought, life, priorities. You know, and, and there is this disagreement that starts in verse 2 between these two prominent women that it was serious, serious enough for Paul to mention publicly, call them out by name, and we've been calling them out by name ever since. For 2,000 years, this is the legacy that they have left the Christian community. Two chicks that argued all the time, that couldn't get along, found fault with each other constantly. Look at verse 2. I plead with you guys. With Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, two feminine names in the Greek language, to agree with each other in the Lord. Nothing is worth sacrificing the unity in the body of Christ. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Quite frankly... I would not want to see my name written in Scripture as a person that needed to be called out publicly by an apostle 
and humiliated as this letter was read to the entire church. Just put yourself in that spot. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. It'd be like, okay, we are gathered here this morning so I can call out some of you guys. So I'm going to call out. Who am I going to call out? Well, let me call you out by name. Oh, okay. Teresa. Teresa. Okay. And Paul. Okay. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Teresa and Paul. And we're calling them out. Because why? Because they can't get along. They're cat fighting all the time. And the whole church then looks at them and goes, Oh, really? Oh, yeah, okay. You want to raise, okay, raise your hand, sure, okay. Everybody take note. And for 2,000 years, these two ladies have been called out. Now, here's what some have suggested. They're, they're both feminine names. Perhaps they were deaconesses in the church. Perhaps they hosted two different home fellowships, one Greek and one Jewish. That's been suggested by some of the scholars. <clears throat> I want to throw out another. Maybe it's a mom and a daughter. Now, I know you daughters in here have never disrespected your mothers. Well, how could you justify doing it? You know it's against Scripture. You know it's commanded in the Old Testament and the New to honor and respect and obey your parents. So there's no justification for dis dissing your parents. Well, you, if you only knew my mom, you'd know I'd have a good... I, I don't care to know your mom. I know what Scripture says. It forbids you to do that. Suppose this is a mom and a daughter issue. Because mom and daughter issues, it can tear apart a church. Am I stepping on enough toes here to make the point? This is called exhortation. Just own it. Just say, I hear you, Pastor Jim. Raise your hand. Go ahead. Let me call you out. Or I'll call you out by name. I wouldn't do Yeah, I would. <laughs> if Paul loved him enough to do that, he loved these two women. He's not trying to publicly humiliate them. He wants to know them to know, first of all, it's serious. Don't do it. You're tearing apart the body of Christ. Don't do it. And then secondly, Paul encourages others in the body of Christ to help these ladies. Why don't you other folks in the, in the church? Zizigus is probably the man's personal name. It's described here in verse 3, loyal yoke fellow. It's probably the personal Greek name, Zizigus, which means loyal yoke fellow. Whoever it was, it was a leader in the church who seemed to be particularly adept at peacemaking. Okay? And that's what we should do. We should come alongside of each other. Because when two women in the church are tearing the church apart, whether they're hosting different home fellowships, whether they have a different view of things, political differences, uh, if it's a mom and a daughter, understand that Satan will work through anybody he can to destroy the body of Christ. Don't do Satan's work for him. You know what Scripture says. Well, mom's not always right. No, moms and dads aren't always right. The issue isn't whether they're always right. The issue is will you obey them? Will you respect them? Will you speak well of them? And there is no excuse for you not doing that. None. None whatsoever. So here's the admonition I take away from it. Get a handle on it now, whether it's moms and daughters, 
two ladies in the church that just happen to know each other or leadership in the church. Deal with it before somebody has to call you out by name and come alongside of you, exhortation, paracaleo, and calls you out and says, I want you in my office. I hate doing that. Can I tell you, I just hate doing that. The only reason I want you in my office is when you, like, bring me hot dogs or something. I don't want to yell at anybody. I don't want to chastise anybody. That's not my job. My job is to love you and to encourage you and to bless you, let you know I'm there for you, and we are your servants. I hate those times where I have to have somebody come in my office as a matter of discipline. I hate that because it should have been dealt with long before it came to my office. You guys should have seen the trouble spots in the fellowship, and you should have loved them enough to come alongside of them and say, here, let me help you sit down and mediate this. You know, didn't Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God? Well, that's your role and mine. Feel free to step in and say, hey, just want to diffuse this subject a little bit. Can we talk about this? Can we pray about this? Can we reconcile? You know, that's what the body of Christ should be known for. It requires a spirit of gentleness. We tend to get defensive. Here's what happens. When you get defensive, all communication shuts down. As soon as you get defensive, there's nothing to be learned, nothing to be said. It's all self-justification. It's all the flesh. And that's not what you want to bring to the table as a Christian. So I look at these two ladies, and I'm going, oh, man, I don't want that in my church. Paul didn't want it in the church of the Philippians either. And so he's encouraging the, the two ladies here. Just get along with each other because tearing apart the body of Christ isn't worth what you're, whatever it is you're arguing about. Knock it off. Knock it off. Speak well of each other. Verse 3, yes, and I will ask you, loyal, yoke fellow, others in the body of Christ, especially leadership, elders, deacons, pastors, help these women who have contended at my side. They're godly women. That's not the issue. They're saved. Nobody's questioning their salvation. He's calling into question their conduct, not their salvation. There's lots of people that need help in dealing with some of the issues of life. That's where we should come alongside of each other, not a, in the role of a judge or I'm your overlord or something like that. Not at all. But we should care enough to help each other reconcile when there are outstanding issues. Because uh, I don't want my name written on these pages and 2,000 years from now people are still reading about how I had messed up. He pleads, pleads with them. I don't know what their individual situation is, but I can tell you this. The answer is Jesus. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness. Man, we need a baptism of gentleness in the church today because there's so much harshness in the world. Uh, I, I don't want it in the church. It doesn't glorify uh, God uh, to have it in here. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, an old 19th century English preacher that I like to read from time to time because he could, he could turn a phrase. He had this to say, I'm glad we don't know uh, what the quarrel was about. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. <laughs> in other words, I don't, I'm not blessed by hearing about who you're arguing with. Or asking me to pick sides. That's why most people come in for counseling. They've already got their minds made up. 
They just want you to tell them that what they have already planned to do is okay. I never do that. I don't take sides. I open up the Bible and I ask them both, are you doing what the Bible says? If you're not, there's room for improvement. Let's surrender that to the Lord. He says, but as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not prone to give or take offense. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah had said. Their minds are sweetly occupied with higher things, Spurgeon says, and they are not easily distracted by the little, petty troubles which naturally arise amongst imperfect creatures as we. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. Oh, Spurgeon. I like reading him. I like reading him. He goes on to say, Paul does, as he enlists the aid of this loyal yoke fellow to help these two women. He, he Notice as he wraps up verse 3, whose names are written in the book of life. Whose names are written in the book of life. Here's why reconciliation is so important today. Because Satan uses unresolved conflict to destroy churches. Today, it is far easier when you're offended, it's far easier to leave and find another church. There's 440 of them in Colorado Springs. It's far easier to leave and not deal with conflict, though you know it's unbiblical. You know it's not of the Lord. You know it's against the word of God. But it is easier today to leave and just go to another church than to deal with these issues as Paul is dealing uh, with these issues here. Uh, few today are interested in reconciliation. It's just easier to leave and move on to the next church with issues unresolved. Here's the problem. You drag your problems with you. And your next pastor will be calling me going, yo. What's with these two folks? They don't seem to be able to get along with anybody. And they, once they realize the gig is up, then they move on to the next church, and the next church, and the next church. Satan knows that you don't grow church hopping. You'll never mature spiritually. It's like picking a fruit tree up out of the backyard and every year planting it in a different hole in the backyard. It'll never bear fruit. Never. Satan knows that. So his goal is to keep you church hopping. Discontented, unresolved, but it's unbiblical. That's the problem. Here's the deal. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Why don't you act like it? It's, you, it's mentioned eight times in the whole Bible, the book of life. Half of those mentions are in the, on the book of Revelation. For instance, in Revelation 3.5, as he writes the church at Sardis, he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white, and I will never blot his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Isn't that cool? It appears that everybody on earth ever born, their name starts out in the Lamb's book of life. But if you cross through death's door and never repented of your sins or accepted Christ Jesus, then your name is blotted out. God's not willing that any, be, that any perish, but that all be saved. But that's kind of between you and the Lord, isn't it? He's not going to drag any of you kicking against your will into heaven. 
You don't want a relationship with God? Guess what? You'll answer for that, but he'll respect the decision you make, as poor as it might be. In Revelation 20, we read about that book again. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, spiritual life, Zoe. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. Is, let me just ask you a question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your life surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed him as the son of God who paid the price for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day? If you're not there, man, you need to deal with this because someday the books are going to be open and you're going to wind up with the short end of the stick. Here's the problem. All, all, all younger people think they're going to live forever. So when I was 19, to prove me otherwise, God uh, put me in a car accident that nearly took my life and wound up with 175 stitches in my face, and I broke every single bone in my face. And I didn't sin for six months. He had my full attention. He had my full attention. Could have died, didn't have a seatbelt on, and rolled and flipped a car at 80 miles an hour. Why? Because I was stupid. Before you can be old and wise, you first have to be young and stupid. Get the T-shirt. It, it's your mantra. But the shorter the period of stupidity, the less hurt you will experience through life. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Do it early. Mean it. Stick with it. The knowledge that we're headed to heaven should put a smile on our face 24-7. I don't want to be caught up with the petty in, in, this, in this life. There's all sorts of things. I get asked all the time, well, Pastor Jim, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do, you, do you like this flower better to that flower? Do you like, do you, like you know, patterned toilet paper in the bathrooms or plain? <laughs> I'm just glad to have toilet paper. I don't care what it looks like or what the color is. I can't get into those. Well, what do you think about these color combinations? Who cares? <laughs> I just care that the walls are painted. That's nice. But we can be so absorbed with the petty. Am I walking with Jesus? Am I walking in the fruit of the Holy Spirit? When's the last time I read my Bible? When's the last time I spent an hour in prayer? These are the things that make for a changed people. And changed people in the church will change society outside the church. But it begins in here. And this is all a journey between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't take that journey for you. I can do it for myself. But I can tell you, looking back over some unusually stupid times in my life where God has gotten my full attention, I, I just don't want to go there again. I don't want to go there again. Drove a motocross bike off a, off a cliff one time, didn't mean to. Wound up at 100 feet in the bottom, broke more bones, and laid open soft tissue and spent time in the hospital again. And thinking, Why? Had heart attacks, had COVID, had ankle surgeries gone wrong, eye surgeries gone wrong. 
you know, God has used all of these things to get my attention. I'm trying to save you a little pain. Okay, work with me. Work with me on this. I have your best interest. I can, I can say, been there and done that. But don't be so pig-headed that no, I'll have to learn myself. An 80-mile-an-hour car wreck is waiting for you. I mean, if that's what it takes, God will provide it. Sounds pretty stupid to me. I mean, why would you want to do that? Break every bone in your face, 175 stitches? You want to look like Frankenstein? That's not a hot tip for picking up girls. We don't, we think so short-sighted in life. And he's trying to tell these people that are bickering about stupid stuff, don't you realize your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You represent Christ. People are watching you. Don't be silly. Don't be petty. Don't be argumentative. Don't destroy your own house with your own mouth. Proverbs warn us against that. It's so easy to be in the flesh. The promise of heaven alone should prompt us to perpetual praise as far as I'm concerned. It's so easy. Instead, say, well, I don't feel good. We groan. Who cares? You're not going to hell. That's good news. Well, I'm not appreciated at work, we cry. Who cares? We're going to heaven. I won the lottery, we shout. Who cares? So what? That's nothing compared to heaven. All of the things that we think are so wah-wah here, it just means nothing in the scheme of eternity. What we should be doing down here is what he tells us, commands us to do in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Always. I can't rejoice in my circumstances always. I can always rejoice in the Lord. Heaven is assured you. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Joy or rejoice, he mentions 16 times in these four short chapters. He's trying to make a point. But don't get confused. I can't rejoice in my circumstances. But is God still on the throne of your life? Yes. Does he love you? Yes. Is he, is he still got heaven and a room set aside for you? Yes. Well, get your eyes off of you then. Get your eyes off of the problem. Keep them on the Lord. Because I can tell you this, in the long run, everything's going to turn out just fine if you keep your eyes on the Lord. Promise of God. Notice how often we should do it. Always, 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 verse 4. Why? Number one, it's commanded. Number two, our joy and our future reward is sure. Because he says, look at this, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. I want you to put down Galatians 5.24, right beside that. Gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Here's why you need it. You don't have it. We don't have it. Gentleness is not something that you inherited from mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Gentle is kind. It's an interesting Greek word that was used to describe a horse, a wild horse, being broken. It didn't diminish its strength. It made it usable for the master's service. That's the word that he's using here. Gentleness is not some sissy, semi-feminine quality seen in effeminate men. That's not what it is about. Gentleness means that I possess all of my strength, but it's under the control of my master. And he will use it for his glory. 
But there is so much harshness out there. You, you probably experience it as often as I do. Yesterday, Powers Avenue was a little on the wonky side between the ice and the snow and the fog and the sleet and the hail and windshield fogging over. And if you have a vehicle that's older than 10 years old, have you noticed your defrosters don't work worth a rip? You're driving by faith, wiping with one arm on the inside of your windshield, trying to keep up with all of this stuff. And then, and you're doing like 40 miles an hour and, and everybody is skidding sideways and stuff. And then some guy in a four-wheel drive blasts by you at 70 miles an hour, honks his horn and flips you off simultaneously. We don't live in a gentle society anymore. They, the gentleness is, is not seen out there. If it's not seen in you, the world is not seeing Christ in you. Did you hear that? Gentleness will make you a respectful person. Gentleness will make you a kind person. Gentleness will make you a strong spiritual person suitable for the master's work. This gently, read Galatians 5. It talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It says the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not self-effort, not the fruit of Jim Etheridge. But the closer I get to him, the more is seen of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Ooh, kindness, self-control. There is not a person in this room that doesn't need more of that stuff. Your marriage needs it. Your coworkers need you to need it. Your friends, your family, they all are looking for more of that fruit in you, and it'll bless them more when you possess more of that fruit in you. God is always worthy of our praise. And if our eyes are on him, then I can face anything down here. Habakkuk chapter 3, there's an interesting book you probably haven't read for a day or two. Habakkuk 3.17, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. That's just a mindset. That's just a mindset that says, I got my eyesight up here, so what happens down here doesn't matter so much. But this is the stuff we argue about. This is the stuff that divides churches. This is the stuff that destroys relationships inside a home. And yet we obsess with this nonsense that has no eternal value at all. Elevate your eyesight, man. There'll be, you need peace in your home. You want peace in your home. God wants to give it to you, but it's all about how close you're walking with Christ. James would put it this way, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Most of us would put a period there and go, the guy's a whack job. I don't understand that mindset. It all hurt me till it feels good. But then he goes on to say, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is not as concerned with your immediate comfort as you are. He's in the long game. He's looking to make holy people that will walk into eternity and rule and reign with Christ forever. 
That's what he's in this for. You and I obsess with our current situation. We obsess with how comfortable we are now. We're concerned more with our flesh than our spirit. And Paul is saying, I encourage you to think higher. To think higher. Peter says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I can't always rejoice in my circumstances, but I can always rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5, so after commanding us to rejoice, verse 5, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He's near in the sense that his second coming is closer than you and I think. He's nearer and present every time there's two or more of us gathered in his name. Jesus is right here, right now, reading your heart and your mind like an open book. He knows exactly where you're at spiritually, and there is no amount of cover-up that can hide your true nature from his eyes. He knows you. He loves you. He is near. Nearer now than when we first believed, as Romans 13, 11 says, the next great event in God's prophetic schedule is Christ's return. And the geopolitical situation today screams out how near it is going to be. But don't let that cause you anxiety. Some people say, oh, I can't stay watching the news anymore. I just get depressed or mad or I just, it just rattles my cage. Well, he addresses that in verse 6. And he says, don't be anxious about anything. Interesting, the word anything is emphatic in the original. It stands first in the sentence. It says, nothing, not anything in the whole universe. Don't be anxious about. Don't be anxious about it. Here's how you and I spiritualize. Well, I'm really not. Anxious Pastor Jim, I'm, I'm just concerned. I'm concerned. No, you're a worry wart and you know it. Let's not put a frosting on this mud cupcake, okay? Let's just call it for what it is. When you... No, I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but I'm amazed at how much fear I hear in the body of Christ these days. In Christians, oh, I'm afraid of this. Oh, I'm afraid of that. Oh, and they're afraid. You just, where's your faith? Where in the world is your faith? You say that you're a Christian. You say that you have faith. The proof's in the pudding. Show me your faith. Don't tell me how spiritual you are. I want to see it. I want to hear it. What comes out of your mouth? Does it sound like a mature Christian? Don't be anxious about anything. The literal Greek, stop being anxious. He says that to a Christian community given to anxiety and justifying it. Stop being anxious. It's a command. He can command that because God is greater than it. Anxiety is self-centered. It's counterproductive. Worry and internalized stress uh, that has not been given to God is what anxiety is. Not been given to God. Give it to God and experience peace. That's what you have to lose. Otherwise, your anxiety will get you to act neurotic. Can I tell you what? That's not blessing anybody when you get weird. Give it to God. 
The antidote to anxiety is what? Prayer and petition and thanksgiving that he orders for us here next. But in everything, by prayer, how's your prayer life? And petition, that's asking God to move on your behalf. With thanksgiving. If you're a thankful Christian, you're not a complaining Christian. Can I tell you, God must be fed up to death with complaining Christians. And it is epidemic. You think COVID was an epidemic? No, complaining is epidemic in the body of Christ globally. It is the antithesis of thanksgiving. Give thanks to God. Thankful Christians are not complaining Christians. And with all of this, present your requests to God. If you do verse 6, here's what he'll do in return in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The antidote to anxiety is peace. What's peace mean? You don't get rattled. You don't get rattled. You have a heavenly perspective. And so earthly things just don't rattle you. So when people flip me off on Powers Boulevard, I assume that's a single-digit salute. I, I don't wish them harm. I don't want them to get in an accident. Or some idiot goes around me on a motorcycle bobbing and weaving between traffic at 110 miles an hour with no helmet on, wearing a thong and flip-flops. Do I get mad at them? We pray for them. They need Jesus. Because nobody with Jesus is nearly that stupid. Did I used to do that when I was 19? Somebody prayed for me. I got past stupid and survived. <laughs> pray for people. Pray for people. They need Jesus. People that don't have Jesus act like they don't have Jesus. Pray for them. They need the Lord. Be ready to share the Lord with them. When's the last time you told somebody about how to get saved? When's the last time you prayed with somebody at work or at Walmart or anywhere in between? This is practical Christianity that is not exercised much these days. Everybody wants their fire insurance. Everybody wants to get out of jail free card. They just don't want to turn over their life to Jesus Christ. Here's the problem. Someday when we stand before him, we run the risk of him saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You choose the God you serve in this life. You choose. The, it's either yourself or this world, Satan, drugs, gangs, violence. You name it. You can fill in the blank with anything. If it's not Jesus, you're going to wind up deeply disappointed as you walk through death's door someday. Biblical peace. Man, it's deep. It is heartfelt. It's an inner intimate tranquility like nothing else. It's based on our peace with God. It's that peaceful state of those who, whose sins are forgiven, who walk with him, who cast all of their cares upon him. And notice it says it will guard your mind. It's a military term depicting a sentry standing guard. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. I love that. Christians all have peace with God, but not all of us experience the peace of God. It depends on whether you've given him your current list of problems or not. Your anxieties, your stress, 
You're arguing. You're demanding your own way. You're carnal, self that You feed like there's a wild animal in a zoo. Peace of God no, comes from knowing God. It comes from experiencing God, experiencing his lordship continuously. Know three things. Just know three things. He is in control. You can find that out the easy way or you can find that out the hard way. But I'm telling you, God is in control. He made the universe. You are not so hard a nut to crack. It poses any problems with him whatsoever. He has devoted himself to getting your full and undivided attention. We can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. Having knocked my head against the tree for a long time, I'll tell you, it hurts less when you just give in to God. He is in control. That's number one. Number two, know that he loves you. Why? Beats me. I have no idea. Some of you are ultra lovable and some of you, yeah. He loves you, though. He loves you. Don't fight him on it. Don't fight him on it. Third thing you need to know, everything is going to turn out just fine in the long run if I just keep my eyes on him. That's a continuous 24-7 walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tips his hat as he closes out the section that we have before us this morning in verse 8. He understands that your thought life will determine how you act. What you think on is eventually what you're going to act out. He understands that. So he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things things. The battle is for the mind. What you think on will influence the course of your life. The Proverbs say this, as a man thinks, so he is. The battle's for the mind, so be careful what you think on. Take captive every thought, Scripture tells us, and make it obedient to Christ Jesus. Guard your thought life. Be careful that most people just Put it on cruise control and just let any old thing zip through their minds thinking that it's totally normal, that you have no control over your thought life. If you don't get control of your thought life, it will control you. And it'll pervert your behavior. That's, it's important what you think on because the battle is for the mind. Be careful of what you, you think on. Think on the right stuff. What should we think on? Well, how about the rest of verse 8? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Because what a person allows to occupy his mind will sooner or later determine his speech and his actions. Depends on what you think on. My pastor put it this way. He said, as I look over this list, that pretty well eliminates television, doesn't it? <laughs> of all of the mental pollution that is going out night after night over the TV, our whole nation is being polluted by television, by the television and movie industry. It's leading the nation right down the tubes. Why? 
because it has people think on things that are impure, unholy, filthy, unrighteous, and immoral. It's sort of tragic that a lot of people watch television just before they go to sleep and plant that worldly immorality in your mind just before you drop off. Hmm. You pray and sing hymns. Good. Most people in this room do not know what a hymn is. It is a song <laughs> that was written centuries ago that glorifies God. The good stuff. Do it. As he wraps it up, he says, verse 9, Guys, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a lifestyle that you practice 24-7. It's not what you do. It's who you are. You're either a goat or a sheep, this side of glory. But you can't be both. Despite the age of gender confusion that we live in, which absolutely befuddles me, send your blood or your spittle off to uh, ancestry, and they'll tell you what sex you are. If you're confused on that, just go to chromosome 23X, and they'll tell you what you are. This is nonsense today. Or you pick your personal pronouns. What? You p Let's go back to third grade English, shall we? There's only so many pronouns to spread around. Well, what's your pronouns? Well, today I think my pronoun is Petunia. You can, you can call me Petunia. And if you don't call me Petunia, I'll sue your butt off. Yeah, there's gentleness in action for you, huh? The world is in confusion. Paul says, put these things into practice. And if you do, the God of peace will be with you. But you, if you don't put it into practice, you won't have that peace. So he starts off with these two ladies that can't get along, whoever they are. And he reminds them, you're Christians and you should be acting like it. You give these issues to God, he'll give you his peace in return, which is obviously the problem if you're not getting along in the body of Christ. Pursue moral and spiritual excellence, and God's peace will be experienced more and more all the time. I saw this little gem on my daughter's gymnastic class oh, many, many years ago, but it really challenged me as a pastor. And I, I remember it because I, I wrote it down at the time. I was impressed. If you want to perform like a champion, you must practice like one. Same is true of Christianity. You want to be a champion Christian, you must practice like one. Nothing, nothing great was ever accomplished through apathy or lukewarmness or lack of zeal, dedication or discipline. Nothing was ever accomplished that was meaningful through apathy, lukewarmness, a lack of zeal and dedication. Keep these things in mind. Live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Talk to him daily. Ask him to change you. You got a problem with your mouth? Ask him to take care of that for you. Get yourself in the word of God. Practice holiness instead of impurity. Because if you're not going to do that, why did you even come here this morning? Why bother if you're going to sit and joke and talk and make fun and diddle on your phone. What are you doing here? This is a place where sheep gather, not, I don't entertain goats. 
That's not my job. This is the Word of God. I need you to take it seriously. You hear what I'm saying? There's a lot on the line. Christ is coming back soon. And he's coming back for a bride that is spotless and white, not lukewarm and apathetic. Pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Give him all of your anxieties, all of your stress. Let him give you his peace, his love, his joy, his contentment. That's what he has for you. Why would you reject that? Well, you, a sane person wouldn't. Well, let's stand and close in prayer, shall we, as the praise band comes up. Hi, bubs. Lord of heaven and earth, how we need you. This world has gone so far astray. It pursues everything to feed the flesh except you. Drugs are out of control. Pornography is out of control. Selfish behavior, narcissism, self-centeredness, social media. People think they can't live without their cell phone, but they think they can live without you just fine. Father, I pray that the church would be pursuing you these last days, that we would be walking in holiness, that we would seek you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We would never allow division to raise its ugly head in our homes, in our workplaces, or in our church. We know that Satan is a liar, a thief, and a destroyer. A murderer has been from the beginning, has been doing it since. Do not let him plant the seeds of division in the places that you have set us, Father. Help us to stand for what is right, to think on things that are lovely and praiseworthy and admirable. May our hearts and our minds be above, centered above, not on things below. You're coming soon for your church. And I praise you with all that is within me that you've written my name in the Lamb's book of life. I love you, Lord, with all of my heart and long to live a life that's pleasing to you. Forgive me my sins, my failures, my doubts, my shortcomings, and everyone in this room. Forgive them theirs. Make us like you, Lord. May we fall more in love with you with every passing day. May we love each other, speak well of each other, and keep the enemy from getting a foothold in any of our business. We give you glory, honor, and praise in ourselves as living sacrifices this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a child of God. Thank you.